The following conversation with Lorelai Garrity about how whites can combat white supremacy originally aired on July 3rd, 2020 on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest, and it airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Lorelai Garrity is going to be my guest uh, uh, here on the show today uh, over the phone since we only allow one person in the broadcast studio at the moment. Lorelai, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Great. All right. So uh, Lorelai and I met for the first time a few weeks ago. Uh, She's a local writer and community member. She... um, Encourage me to not call her an activist. Well, maybe we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, everybody has a different, I guess, uh, definition of activism. Anyway, she's a local writer and community member who engages other white people on the need to dismantle white supremacy and build solidarity, among other things. Um, but that'll be the focus of what we're talking about today. So we're going to be talking uh, for the next 45 or 50 minutes or so. Our conversation will be archived uh, at kpov.org under the Radical Songbook um, program uh, page starting tomorrow for one week. And I will turn it into a podcast as quickly as I can, uh, and that will be up at the podcast um, site on KPOV um, sometime uh, in the next, within the next week, and there that'll be up there for forever, because I don't know how to take them down. Um, f- feel free to uh, so f- so feel free, uh, Lorelai, to uh, well. First of all, I want to welcome you, welcome you to KPOV and the Radical Songbook. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Yeah, no, I'm really I'm really glad you're able to do it. So feel free to expand a bit on how you uh, see yourself in our community if you want, but then we can just get right into um, the subject at hand. Yeah, sure. Um, So you briefly mentioned that I prefer not to be called an activist, um, and that's simply because uh, there are lots of activists here in Central Oregon uh, who are really doing the work, putting themselves out there, uh, advocating for the people in city government. And uh, I I choose not to call myself that because um, I'm not as involved in local government. I'm not involved in policy change. Um, and really, I'm, I'm just a community member. I'm just here to talk with people about white supremacy. And um, even in that capacity, I, I don't see myself as an educator on this topic. Uh, I, I just speak to my own perspective, and ideally people might find some value in that. Uh, I try to make the conversation much more personal um, and sort of cater to each person. So. That's a little bit about me, okay. um, and so I just I just say community member. <laughs> okay, all right. I you know it's okay with you if I consider you an activist, though, right? <laughs> uh, sure, I, yeah, I can't <laughs> okay. tell you see me. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, so part of what we've talked about in back and forth email exchanges and some materials that we've we've sent one another um, are is um, the the issue of allyship, which has become a um, I don't know. It's become a thing, you know, uh, the last few years. And certainly here in Bend, we have organizations that, that work on the on the whole question of allyship. Um, so maybe, you know, given given the notes that you sent me, does it make sense for from your perspective that we start with that and start talking about um, explaining to listeners your definition of allyship, what it, what it is and what it isn't? Yeah, I think that makes total sense to start that way. Okay, good. Um, Yeah, so, you know, we were talking, Michael and I, about this session today, about this conversation, and um, initially the words uh, white allyship were mentioned as the topic, and to be honest, I felt a little bit guilty when when we were talking about this because um, I I don't feel that I'm necessarily the, the best person to speak on white allyship because... Truth be told, I, I don't personally believe that it's a, a real thing, um, and I know that people might hear that and have some, you know, intense reactions to that. But I hope that our conversation today can help, you know, broaden the perspective a little bit and maybe provide an alternative route or focus for people to, 
you know, devote their energy to. Okay, so um, yeah, we've we've talked a bit about about allyship, and so um, so what in your mind uh, are some of the what are some, what are some of the concerns that you have about um, allyship and what it looks like? Sure. Um, so for me, I've been studying white supremacy over the last two years. I've been studying um, anti-racism work just for myself and for the for the community here, but. The thing that I've learned about allyship through all of that is that it's a fairly complicated concept. Um, There are definitions that are very fully realized. Um, They're beautiful definitions, but to be quite frank, often in reality and action, that fully realized definition doesn't really manifest. Um, What ends up happening more often is that uh, allyship sort of falls short, and it takes on its own its own internal logic that takes away from the real definition. Um, and so, when I say real definition, you know, what does that mean? Uh, I would like to just quickly quote uh, writer Layla F. Syed. I'm sure that folks have heard her name in reference to her book "Me and White Supremacy." Uh, it definitely took off since it got published last February, I believe, or this February. Uh, and she defines allyship as an active, consistent, and challenging practice of unlearning and reevaluating, in which a person of privilege seeks to work in solidarity with a marginalized group. Allyship is not an identity. It is a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized individuals or groups. Allyship is not self-defined. Our work and our efforts must be recognized by the people we seek to ally ourselves with. So looking at that definition, that's, that definition is a perfect example of what I mean by a fully realized definition. Um, I, I very much agree with, with her perspective on allyship. However, uh, the problem comes up when, uh, you know, we who, anyone striving to be an ally doesn't take into consideration that definition and instead sort of seeks out um, a more comfortable route, a a, a more easily accessible route, um, maybe a route that just makes us feel better since, you know, that's how humans sort of work. And in the end, that's what's called optical allyship, uh, which basically means that you're scratching the surface of allyship, but you're not necessarily going beneath that and going in depth to look at the systems of power. Um, And personally, you know, from what I've seen, uh, you know, working with community members in this area, uh, white allyship uh, tends to fall into that optical category, uh, which is why I say there's a big difference between the fully realized definition and then what actually tends to take place in real life. Does, Does that make sense? Yeah, I, yeah, it it does to me. I, I've I've talked with and had had folks on the show here before talking about allyship, and and you know one of the uh, one of the things that I that I think about when I think of being an ally, I kind of go back to I guess you know, um, I don't know if it's the root of the word or what, however you would want to want to say it, but I, I think in terms of alliances, I think that mm-hmm. an, an ally is part of 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 an alliance, and that and that if you're going to be a genuine ally uh, of anyone um, that that you have to figure out a way to you have to be part of uh, building an alliance with that person and I guess one way that I kind of a shortcut way that I think about it and and, and I don't want to I mean I, in some ways I think the difference uh, in my in my mind is that it's between the the difference between allyship and um, being an ally and being an anti-racist and, and, and anti-racism is, is uh, you know, uh, as an ally, you're trying to be a better person, and, and that's good. I mean, you know, I strongly encourage people to be better on on all, you know, levels. Um, but there's a difference between being better and you know, trying, to, trying to be better and trying to do better because – Trying to be better is kind of more of an internal kind of thing, and, and trying to do better means taking action. And, and I think, yeah. you, and I think you can, yeah, and you may not agree with this. I don't know about. I, I think you can be an ally 
and, and consider yourself an ally, which it is, can be a mistake in and of itself, as you've pointed out, um, without necessarily taking any action. Um, and that gets back to that sort of feeling good about yourself kind of thing. Um, and and as, as if, you know, so does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I definitely like your point about, you know, conceptualizing allyship more so in relation to alliances. I think I think alliance actually serves a better, uh, serves the concept better. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, the, the question that I can't help but wonder when, you know, especially we white people, when we're, you know, talking as a group and talking about allyship, the question that I have uh, that kind of, I think, is an important part of this conversation is why do we feel like, we need that title or that name to call ourselves a quote ally. Um, I think that personally, um, when we when we want to call ourselves an ally or when we want to call our actions allyship, we are inadvertently centering ourselves in this fight. Um, the, so, what do you? The question of, like, okay, what is allyship? What does ally mean? I think ultimately what it comes down to is why do we feel like we need that? Does a title like ally make us feel better? Does it actually solve the problem? And ultimately, what does who does that term serve? Uh, does it serve someone who is from a non-dominant culture? Or does it serve primarily white people or people with privilege? I think that's a really important question to ask. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that, and, and I think you, um, you know, you've, you've in in some of the notes that you sent me, you know, you, you've made the point that you know, ally is, it's not a title, it's not a title that one can self-claim, um, and uh, that you know you can strive to be an ally uh, of, you know, of of people of color of of. BIPOC people in, in our community, uh, in your neighborhood, you can strive to be uh, uh, an ally, but but it's not up to you to proclaim yourself to be an ally. It's really kind of up to those other folks who you are trying to ally, ally, ally yourself with to determine if you are an ally. I mean, it's it's it puts it uh, that the the focus goes to to them, not not to you. I thought District Attorney John Hummel addressed that. Uh, I thought he addressed it well. Uh, I think it was uh, at a press conference that he held recently where he explained, tried to explain, I thought, that, you know, it's not up to him to say that he's an ally. He's, you know, he basically said, I want to be your ally, uh, but it's up to you to determine if I'm doing the job of being your ally. That ultimately, uh, and, you, and, it's a, and, and if I'm not, Tell me, <laughs> you know, right? You know, right. It was it was it was kind of taken differently by different people at this press conference, unfortunately. But I thought he was pretty. I thought that was a pretty straightforward way to say it. You know, sure. Um, I unfortunately was not able to, you know, hear or participate in that in that conversation. But um, you know, personally, and I'm just speaking for myself here. I'm not trying to, you know, dictate what is or isn't correct. But for myself, I try to push myself beyond the concept of allyship um, entirely because, you know, for me, uh, I feel that, you know, allyship and the term ally can often be used as um, as a as a thing to cling to and for, in a way that sort of says, okay, I'm an ally, therefore there's nothing more that I need to do. I'm already doing what I need to do. Right. Um, and so for me, I try to push beyond that, and I, I prefer the, the word accomplice. And I know that that sort of has like a legal sound. It has a, a legal vibe to it. So who knows how language will develop in the coming years around this, but... I mean, especially when we're talking about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, when we're talking about the protests and demonstrations that have been happening here in Bend and in Central Oregon, uh, I think that the term accomplice serves us better in determining what we should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, 
And the reason I say that is because um, many times, for, from my perspective, uh, when we talk about allyship, there's a con- there, there's an underlying, um, unspoken, deeply untrue but present belief that okay, allyship is uh, you know calling people out uh, when they do something problematic, which is true. That's good, um, wh- but in a way, it limits the the truly broad and beautiful expression of solidarity that we're capable of. Um, And so accomplice to me speaks to, especially us white people, committing to giving our wealth and our resources and our bodies to movements. I think if we can do that, then we're modeling that true definition of allyship, but we don't necessarily need that title. I think that concept pushes us beyond our comfort zones, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I mean, having you know spent a good part of my part of my life, my employed life uh, in in the labor movement, you know, the word solidarity and the whole I, the idea of solidarity is to me is is like a very important one, and and to be an accomplice in solidarity. Though I, I will say, and you you noted it, that accomplice does also have this kind of legalistic kind of a negative. I mean, you know, you're an accomplice, you know, you're an accomplice with you can be an accomplice with a good person or a bad person, I guess. And often, often, you know, if you watch too much television, I guess, you know, don't, don't watch a lot of television because you're going to hear the word accomplice used in a more negative framework. But, I, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I think, you know, it's worth, you know, when we, when we think in terms of solidarity and you and I have talked about that and, and, you know, and building alliances and, and all of that, um, that, you know, it, it, the, the language, our, our language and our, our terminology and our language and the way that we, talk about all of this stuff it, it evolves and and you know i think i don't know how far back i would say this but I, I would say five years ago in bend nobody was using the word allyship mm. you know i mean i just think that's true you know and so and that's not a and i and i don't want this to be a criticism of anybody who who uses the word or anything and i don't think you do either i mean i think it's but it's I guess the way I look at it is that it's a it's a it's a good it, you know if you want to if you want to do that that's a good first step but that's all it is it's, right it's a right. Fir- it's that's a fair. good it's a good first step and it, and it's really important to take step two and three and four and five you know down the road right and I think that's sort of I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the importance of this conversation um, and I mean there are amazing groups in Bend that directly talk about allyship and all of their work is centered around building allyship, which is incredibly important. And I think, like you said, uh, the, the important thing is that, you know, if, if allyship is the way to introduce someone to a movement or introduce someone to, you know, a new perspective, then that's fantastic. Start where you need to start. Um, but like you said, don't stop there. Don't let, don't let allyship basically, uh, give you a, a too much of a sense of comfort that you want to cling to it and, and not go beyond it. Hi, this is Elise Bryant, and you're tuned in to The Radical Songbook on 88.9 KPOV High Desert Community Radio. All right, and we are back, and this is The Radical Songbook. I'm your host, Michael Funky, and I'm speaking with Lorelai Garrity, um, who I just met a few weeks ago, but I consider to be a a great ally, <laughs> you know, uh, a friend. Uh, and uh, so at any rate, we've been talking about allyship, but we, but our conversation really, um, what you and I spent a lot of time talking about um, when we got together, Lorelai, was uh, what, what else and, and raising the question of, so that's how I would put it to you. If not allyship, then what? Yeah, I think that's important to talk about when we, all too often when we are talking about changes in terminology or changes in perspective, um, people can get, you know, understandably, you know, a little confused and upset, you know, well, you're telling me I shouldn't think of it this way or, or whatever, then what should I think about? And I think that's a fair, a fair reaction. Um, and so, of course, I'm sharing my personal opinion. I'm not trying to dictate what the answer to that question would be. 
But rather than focus on allyship for myself, I choose to focus on white supremacy, um, which I know is a scary term. I know it's intimidating, and um, it's often very misunderstood. And so, uh, you know, I, I feel like if I'm going to say the word white supremacy, then I should probably, you know, explain a bit about what that word means. Um, so when we, when we hear this word, uh, we, we picture very frightening images, um, you know, burning crosses or Confederate flags or, um, you know, white hoods or, or any of those things. And those, those images are manifestations of white supremacy, but they're a very small percentage of what white supremacy actually is. And what it is is a system, and it's unescapable at this point. Um, No matter who you are, every single day you're interacting with white supremacy, whether you notice it or not. And so I think that's why it's so important for us to talk about this, because a lot of us, myself included, are blind to how white supremacy pops up uh, day to day, but it's there. And maybe if we can get better at identifying it and noticing it, then we can get better at fighting it. Um, So I just really quickly want to share one or two definitions of white supremacy by uh, written by people of color, uh, particularly black members of the community, um, who I think put it in in a very clear but also unique way. I'm going to quote uh, Wazi Merritt, who wrote a piece called On Restoring Our Humanity in a World That Wishes Us Dead. Uh, He describes white supremacy um, this way. Uh, White supremacy has an explicit history of using race as a basis to inflict violence on black people and rob us of our humanity. But it took me a long time to realize just how insidious it is, how malleable. It thrives on disconnection from nature, from each other, and from ourselves. It thrives on exploitation of the land, culture, ideas, and labor. It uses fear to separate us via racism, classism, transphobia, homophobia, sexism, ableism, and xenophobia. And the reason that I really respect and want to honor this this perspective and this definition is because I think it puts very clearly an important point. Um, I, I tell people all the time, if you want to fight against, you know, any of these things, uh, colonization, uh, racism, climate change, ableism, Islamophobia, homophobia, anti-blackness, anti-Semitism, any kind of violence, uh, then really what you want to fight is white supremacy, because it's the umbrella that holds all of those things. And so I think this definition is useful because it clearly uh, shows us the breadth of this concept and that, oh, these things that I think are violent or that I don't like, I can fight all of them if I focus on the general principle of white supremacy. I find that helpful for myself. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with you about that. I, but the thing, the thing is, and I don't know if we want to jump to this or not, but um, but the thing is, what white supremacy uh, is um, deeply interwoven with our economic system, capital, absolutely capitalism. Um, I, I want to I want to mention a book myself. Hold on just a second. Reach behind me and grab it. Um, a book that's called um, the half the half has never been told by a guy named Edward E. Baptiste. It's a terrible title, in my view. The subtitle makes a lot more sense. The subtitle is Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. And that's what the book is about. The half has never been told. And um, it uses it uses narratives. It uses conversations with, uh, with old narratives with with slaves and other, others. And I haven't read the whole book. It's a little dense, but it really does explain the role that... Um, Slavery, racism, white supremacy played in uh, developing our nation, this nation, the industrial capitalism that we all, that all of us white folks uh, benefit from. Um, And so I don't know if that's, if that's too big, if I left, if I jumped over something that you wanted to, more that you wanted to say, then 
Go for it. <laughs> no, I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, I, I, I totally agree, and I wanted to share uh, another quote from uh, writer Ibram X. Kendi, and again, I think lots of people will recognize his name. Uh, he wrote uh, Stamped from the Beginning, and he has also written How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, which is what I'll be quoting from. In that book, he says, to love capitalism is to love racism. And he sort of dissects that a little bit and specifically points to what you mentioned before, which is the tie, the inextricable tie between racism and capitalism. Um, and I think this is interesting history, so I'll share this, I'll share this as well. Um, he says, capitalism emerged during what world system theorists term the long 16th century, which he says is a cradling period that began around 1450 when Portugal and Spain sailed the Atlantic. Uh, Prince Henry from Portugal birthed conjoined twins, capitalism and racism, when it initiated the transatlantic slave trade of African people. So I think your point was spot on, um, and that's incredibly important for us to realize that the the monetary economic systems that, you know, us white people definitely benefit from are founded on uh, thievery and and uh, violence, and in many ways we we really can't defeat one without defeating the other. Yeah, and and it 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 gets back to you know and a term that's become fortunately I think. Uh, repopularized during this Black Lives Matter uh, uprisings, and that's that we're dealing with systemic racism, and what that you know that means is that it, it, this, that racism that's built into our system. And uh, a great quote that I got, and unfortunately, I, I I'm forgetting the name of the, of, of the person. It's an African American woman who's a, a secretary treasurer of the Washington State Labor Council, um, who essentially said, who did say, not essentially said, the system is not broken, as many people are saying. The system is not broken. It is working it is as it was intended to work. And that's what systemic racism means, in my view, is that, you know, this is, that brings it up to today, as far as I'm concerned, is that, you know, this is, this is not, this is not accidental, it's, right. It's, 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 it's not a it's purposeful system at all. It's purposeful. Uh, Very much so. And and so why so and and why I guess I would say that um, power, control, privilege, profit. I mean, all those things that you know. It, it's uh, that that white people in this country generally live have without necessarily consciously thinking about that at all the time but that's what we all we all have we have we have a we have a, a, a greater degree of control over our own lives we have power we have privilege and and um and we profit from the from uh from this system that places people of color uh and other minorities i guess i'd say um on the bottom so to speak Absolutely. Um, and, and one thing that I, I would add to that is just to say um, white supremacy is, is nefarious and it is multiplicitous. Um, it has many faces, it has many sides, and that's what makes it so challenging to confront. And so we, we talked about how white supremacy, um, you know, enslaves and steals uh, from people of color and from other non-dominant groups. Um, but one thing that's important for white people to recognize, too, in addition to that, um, without centering ourselves, but it's worth noting, white supremacy kills us, too. And it, it may not be apparent, but it's true. So on the one hand, like you said, white people, we gain wealth and access and resources because of white supremacy, it steals those things from everyone else. And yet, we as white people can also die of whiteness. And I would definitely urge people who want to learn more about that 
to read a book called uh, Dying of Whiteness, uh, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, written by Jonathan Metzl. It's a very um, in-depth, uh, researched exploration of, of what we just said. Um, but I think it's really important for people to know because, like, if we, if we all want to join together in this fight, we have to recognize that while we white people aren't as affected by it, we, we definitely benefit from it. But in the end, white supremacy doesn't care. It doesn't care. It will kill all of us if we don't dismantle it, which I know is intense to say. <laughs> I know that that's like kind of hard to hear. So I, I really want to follow that up quickly by sort of reframing what we're saying to excite people rather than, you know, terrify us. Yeah. Um, and we, you and I talked about this the other day, which I, I, I really appreciated because it sort of reminded me of this lens. Uh, we were talking about the notion of fighting against something, but what are we fighting for? So reframing this concept, yes, we're fighting against white supremacy, but... What are we fighting for? What happens in the end if we achieve our goal, when we achieve our goal? Uh, we're fighting for liberation. And if we can frame that in our minds to have both and, okay, we're fighting against white supremacy. It's scary, it's intense, and it's destructive. But at the same time, we're fighting for liberation. We're fighting for freedom and love and support and all of those beautiful things that we that we need to survive. So that mindset helps me enormously to continue to do this. And, and that would include, and, and I, of course, I'm, I'm old enough to go back to, um, you know, when, when the term black liberation first uh, came up in the, in the late 60s, uh, kind of followed in a way by women's liberation and, and gay liberation. Um, you know, the first march in 1970 um, in New York City was a gay liberation march. And, and the, so the language was always there. But I think what you're, what, the point you make that's important, too, is that um, if we can achieve these, these various liberation struggles, it'll liberate us white people, too, from from the the from the white supremacy that that uh, also holds us back um i guess i i don't know if i'm wording that quite the way that i would like to but that's what i'm you know i i'm reminded of of something that my, that my friend dalton miller jones said um uh, at the Love Thy Neighbor uh, forum um, that was uh, that the Source and, and OSU, Erica McAlpine put together that was uh, broadcast last Monday, where he talks about how, you know, like getting in the school system, in the Ben Lapine school system, you know, start talking about racism, talking about getting more more uh, educators of color, et cetera, into the school system. That bit, Lord, that white kids in our school system really need to learn that stuff. That's really going to be important. Not and, and it may not seem important today to a lot of people because it's an overwhelmingly white community. But the community, as uh, as another member of that that panel said, community is going to change whether you like it or not. It's going to become a more diverse community, and ultimately, these white children that are living a little bit of a sheltered life perhaps uh, in Bend are going to go elsewhere and they're going to have to deal with this stuff and 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 so education you know get it gets back to education I guess and I'm sorry I'm rambling a bit in here and it might be a bit of a uh, digression uh, but at any rate it just reminded me of that but I know that's so true and I'm glad you brought up uh, Dalton Miller Jones he's he's a voice in this community that we we should all be listening to and honoring. I'm glad uh, you brought him up. Yeah, absolutely, and I and I want to get to that because uh, in terms of what when you we talk about um, um, some of the things that that we should be doing, um, but before we get there, I just want to briefly say so. So when we talk about you know dismantling white supremacy uh, and being anti-racist and connecting it up with capitalism, that's that's kind of huge, right? You know, so I, I'm going to quote something from Angela Davis. Um, 
uh, when she was on Democracy Now! recently. She said the original capital was provided by the labor of slaves. The Industrial Revolution, which pivoted around the production of capital, was enabled by slave labor in the U.S. So I am, as she says, Angela Davis says, so I am convinced that the ultimate eradication of racism is going to require us to move toward a more socialist organization of our economies, of our other institutions. And I think we have a long way to go before we can begin to talk about an economic system that is not based on exploitation and on the super-exploitation of black people, Latinx people, and other racialized populations. So I guess I raise that just that it, it is a huge thing when you're taking on capitalism, but I'm quoting somebody there who's been in this struggle for over 50 years, which, if nothing else, tells us that it's a long struggle. And that you just got to keep going, you know. And I, I sometimes get concerned that, you know, um, people want results really fast. When I was 20 years old, I wanted results really fast. Uh, it led me down some avenues that I was fortunately able to back my way out of. Um, <laughs> but uh, politically speaking, but, uh, you know, ultimately it's a, long, it's, a, it's a constant struggle, as they say. As she says in a book that she wrote called "Freedom is a Constant Struggle," Angela Davis. But it's it's a long struggle, and um, and it's a long haul. And you're not we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna achieve victory, quote unquote, um, overnight. It, it requires the building, in my view, of a of a of a movement. So definitely, definitely. And you know, just to add to that, you, you know, you bring up Angela Davis, you bring up um, you know, black women of, you know, the 1960s, 1970s, and beyond, um, who are talking about capitalism, I, I feel like I have to bring up the Combahee River Collective um, right now in this conversation, because this is exactly what they were talking about. And if you don't know what this group is, um, they were a trailblazing group of radical black feminists, uh, you know, from the 1960s and 1970s. And they formed the Combahee River Collective as a place to publicly merge the concepts of race and uh, feminism. So, in, in the word that we use today, intersectionality. And they very much talk about the same things, how they're, they're a socialist group. So they talk about, um, you know, approaches through socialism that can address not just racism, but also the patriarchy and capitalism. Um, so if people want to learn more about that collective and to learn more about this topic in general, um, I highly recommend their, uh, one of the books about this group called How We Get Free. It's written by Kianga Yamatai Taylor, um, and in it she, she talks with the leaders of this movement um, of this collective and shares a lot of their knowledge. So I just felt like I had to share yeah. that right now. It's super important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just for our listeners, it's the Combahee River Collective, and it's spelled C-O-M-B-A-H-E-E. -E. And I, I suspect that if you um, Google Combahee River Collective, then uh, a lot of material will be coming up uh, yeah. that you're that you're that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, um, sorry, I'm just got my screen, my, my screen here just went blank. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's what always we were... alarming to me when my, all right. Um, so uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to help you out and say, I, I think what we wanted to sort of talk about here toward the end of our conversation is, you know, how do we, how do we fight for liberation? Right. How do we fight against white supremacy? Yeah, yeah, and you talked about, uh, yeah, so what, you know, so what, what are some, what are some guidelines that you, that you would suggest as a white person, speaking to um, uh, other white folks? Right, um, so when we're talking, uh, when we ask the question, how do we fight against white supremacy um, or fight for liberation, there really isn't one method, uh, we all come to the table with our own approaches, and, you know, truthfully, none of them are outright wrong. They just inform each other, and, you know, naturally they grow off of each other. Uh, what I will say in general is that ending white supremacy sort of requires a lot of flexibility and innovation and imagination, critical thinking, and, of course, direct action from each of us. 
Um, and so that's sort of a general uh, approach that I use in my own life to think about this. But in terms of, you know, bullet points, which I think are generally helpful uh, in breaking down a, a really big problem like white supremacy, in terms of bullet points, uh, the first thing I would say is I would urge, you know, above everything else that especially we as white people uh, listen to and follow the leadership of black, brown, and indigenous communities because they have been living the resistance for centuries. So their knowledge and wisdom definitely exceeds our own, and, you know, their leadership is paramount. So, of course, saying that, I'm a white person sitting here. My, my word is not gospel on this. But so instead of listening to me, listen to black, brown, and indigenous writers, educators, and, you know, members of your community. That's a big one. <laughs> and so in addition to that, we obviously have to educate ourselves. Um, and there's a balance here. So white people, we white people, we have it upon ourselves to educate ourselves and our friends and families. But at the same time, we should not be profiting from that, either monetarily or socially. Um, and so balancing our own education within ourselves, we have to balance that with education from, like I said, black, brown, and indigenous people. And of course, we need to compensate them for that education. So education is a big part of the fight. We can't fight something we don't understand. Um, so another thing to consider, uh, we must always be critical. Uh, ultimately, like I said before, white supremacy interacts with us every single day. And if we're not thinking critically, then a lot of that might go unnoticed um, or forgotten. So if we can notice it, then we can weed it out, ideally. Uh, another thing that I wanted to say about, um, you know, how to, how to end white supremacy that we've already touched on is understand that white supremacy and capitalism are linked, and they're one and the same. Uh, and we've obviously already touched on that. But uh, the last thing I would say um, and this I tell myself all the time, is uh, to be curious. Um, if we're not, you know, deeply uh, curious and interested in learning about our world and learning about other people in it, then how, how, can, how can we dismantle anything? How can we change anything without curiosity? And ideally, that curiosity can feed our imaginations and help us you know, reveal more and more options, more and more strategies and solutions. Uh, so curiosity, I personally believe, is key. But again, I'm speaking as a white person. So, you know, listen to others, too. Right. Yeah, I think all of those ideas, those are all, Laurel, I, I really deeply appreciate your, you, you stressing all of those points. And, and I think people need to, as white folks, when we deal with this issue and, and inevitably, internally, there will be from time to time feelings of, of, of guilt associated with learning with, with the, as, you, as you educate yourself about the role that, that uh, white people have played um, in this society. That it's important, I think, uh, and this is from a letter that, by, that uh, uh, was written, uh, my friend Romir Chatterjee passed on to me a letter by uh, uh, Kim Wagner from the University of London, I think this was probably in the London Review of Books, where she says, we are not responsible for the past, but we are responsible for what we choose to remember and what we choose to forget, and I would add to that what we choose to do about it. Um, mm. You know, yeah. uh, that, you know, don't get caught up in, you know, in in the guilt around it. Just, you know, take responsibility. So one one point, one other thing that I would suggest that we people should do is we need to organize. Mm -hmm. um, white supremacy and capitalism is not going to be defeated without, in my view, a sustained mass movement and a, a, a multiracial and multicultural movement for justice. And it, it, that all gets back to, it gets down to the idea of, of power, I think. And, and we've seen in the past in this country that a mass movement, an outside mass movement, if you will, uh, the freedom struggle in the 60s, also known as the civil rights movement in the, in the 50s and 60s, was by and large an outside force. Uh, it wasn't um, uh, 
at that time. It wasn't people who held positions of power. It was a, it was a force that took on people who had power and demanded change and forced the people in power to, um, to change some policies uh, just by the sheer mass nature of, of the movement. And so that's, that's important to remember that we don't necessarily have to be in those positions, but it's also important to take steps to take power. Power is not a bad thing when used properly, right? Power, power, more power will get us more justice. That's just the bottom line. If you have only a little power in society, you're only going to get a little justice. If you have a lot of power in this society, you have the potential to get a lot of justice. And, and I guess what I would add to that is it's really important for these kind of movements to be um, democratic, um, yeah. That they this cannot be a, a top-down, leader-oriented. It's not up to just people who um, proclaim themselves to be leaders. Um, it's it needs to be a democratic thing. And dem- and democracy is messy. Democracy is hard. Um, but without it, th- these kind of movements aren't 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 going to be successful. So and I you know very true. So we're, we're running out of time. I, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to have you back on and, and, and um, uh, to continue this conversation and, and not and, and, and actually pretty soon. Um, uh, I don't know. What are you doing next Friday? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I, I mean, that's a serious question. If you if you want to consider let's you and I talk about that. Absolutely. If that's I'm OK. Happy to talk and, about that. And, and, yeah. and see where, where we can go, because I just kind of feel like we've. Um, obviously we've just touched the surface. It's an ongoing discussion and, 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 um, and an important one. Um, so we, 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 we have a few minutes left. I, I, I do want to, I always want my guests to have an opportunity to sort of sum up things if that's possible or anything that, that I didn't raise, uh, that you didn't get a chance to raise that you want to raise, et cetera. Just, you know, go for it. Sure. Um, I guess one thing that I would say to to sort of close our conversation for today, obviously, like you said, this is ongoing. Um, You touched on this earlier, feelings of guilt or shame or discomfort or or regret, any of those emotions. Um, Going through those when we're, you know, essentially waking up to white supremacy is, is, you know, honestly uncomfortable. And that's, that's okay. What I would, what I tell myself when I feel those feelings, because I do, of course, I feel, I feel guilty and shame and uh, regrets. Um, but when I, when I feel those feelings, I remind myself that waking up sucks. <laughs> Simply put, waking up sucks. Right. Like when you wake up in the morning or whenever you wake up during the day after you've slept. Um, I mean, how is that fun? No. It, like, I know for myself, I hit the snooze button like five or six times before I actually get up, delaying that process. And even when I get up, I'm groggy, I'm grumpy, I'm disoriented, I, I don't want to talk to anyone or do anything. And the truth be told is that ultimately you, you have to wake up, you know, you have to wake up and go about your day. Um, and so I try to compare the two and tell myself, you know, it's okay to to feel bad. It's okay to feel grumpy or groggy. Just understand that waking up is is hard and it's part of it, but once you do that, more often than not we enjoy our days. We we we, we enjoy seeing our friends and, you know, eating good meals and, you know, traveling or uh, doing a, a a good deed, you know, those things make us feel alive. Um so I think ultimately waking up sucks, but the rest of the day is worth it. That's how I try to look at it. Great. Nice. A, a good way to end. And this part one, I guess I'll call this of our conversation. I really do want to um, get get you back on, on the radio to, to talk more about this if, you, if you're willing to do that. I, I think it's uh, – I, I don't know. I, I really I – hope, I hope our listeners – listeners, I hope that you got something out of what we're talking about here. Um, and I really um, have a lot of respect, Lorelai, for the work that, you, that you're doing. Um, 
today. Well, thank you. you know, thank you. Our, our, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'd be happy to come back. Uh, I, I was very nervous this morning, but maybe the more times I do it, I won't be as nervous. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're not nervous. I hope you got, I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's pretty, I, I try to keep it casual, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so, uh, and again, uh, I, I just really respect the work the work that you're doing for for listeners who don't know there's a rather large age gap between Lorelai and I in terms of uh uh <laughs> our you know our lives and uh, and it's just great you know I'm, I mean I'm uh, as Angela Davis has said on uh, Democracy Now and stuff I'm really you know uh, uh it's it's really exciting to see um what's happened what's happening in our country right now in terms of of what I call genuine uprisings of of uh of people of of all races and nationalities and colors coming together um and hopefully together we can uh it, it, it's just it's really it's just really um for 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 those of us who you know have been doing it off and on for a long long time it's really gratifying to see and hopefully we can sustain what we're doing what's happening right now and 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 be able to transform it um into something that's a, that's organized and 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 continues forward um because we really it's the only way we're going to get um to the promised land as it were uh true is, is and by, i think it's it's i'm glad you brought up the the age difference because you know you spoke to you know enjoying and learning from you know the the younger cohort uh but i would say the same thing for you know our elders those who have been doing this for a long time you know we we as young people have a lot of new ideas and new perspectives but at the same time it, it's important to you know learn from those who've been doing this for a long time so that, i appreciate you too thank, yeah thank you thanks again thanks for listening to this kpov podcast kpov is community radio for the high desert of central oregon for more information and a program schedule go to kpov.org we value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.